G'day and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week we've got Professor Simon Jackman, the CEO of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, sharing his thoughts on Donald Trump's first State of the Union address. And on Australian politics, we've got Michelle Grattan, the chief political correspondent at The Conversation, who's telling me whether Malcolm Turnbull can hold his own this year. Shane Oliver tells us about the markets. He's Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. And Ricky Polygenis, Head of Australian Economics at NAB, takes us through the latest inflation figures. Joining me now is Simon Jackman, the CEO of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Simon, do you think that the State of the Union speech was, as Greg Sheridan said, in the Australian presidential and statesmanlike, or as a few people have said in the, um, in the New York Times, uh, evil and um, interminable and boring. And, <laughs> uh, evil, or somewhere uh, between the two, perhaps. I think somewhere between the two. He, um, like the Davos speech, um, Trump uh, stayed, as we say, on the teleprompter, and and also uh, the, the set of topics crafted for him um, by his staff and, and speechwriters. He stayed away uh, from mentioning the Russia investigation. I guess the New York Times there is referring uh, to uh, what he had to say uh, about immigration um, remains a, a big a big problem for them. But certainly in in, in style, uh, if not in substance, it was it was Trump perhaps uh, as as presidential as Trump. Can, uh, has gotten and probably can get. I think Greg Sheridan was suggesting that it was a turning point. Do you think it was? Might might be. No, I don't. Look, it might be. Um, we're now into 2018, well and truly, and at some point Trump starts to be able to legitimately claim credit for what's happening in the American economy. Um, the the critique that he is the beneficiary of. Uh, uh, good policy settings put in place by the Obama administration and and Jessica Yellen and all and all, and all of that. Uh, at some point, he gets to legitimately claim credit, and maybe we're at that point. Um, and moreover, I think what Trump needs to do is somehow make it less about him as media personality and him as president presiding over over a robust uh, American economy. And if and if that's the turning point, then yeah. Uh, and, and if anything, we'd be on a trajectory for a, a more conventional presidency than the one he's treated us to thus far. I guess um, underlying all this is the Russian investigation that you mentioned before. And um, uh, what's your sense of where that's at? I suppose nobody really knows where it's at, but I mean, but the stakes are quite high, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the that's why I, I, I hesitate to say the speech is the turning point, because Mueller and his investigation and moreover, the politics around the investigation are such a wild card in the American system at the moment. Mueller and his team uh, do not leak. Um, that's been stressed to me by so many friends and observers and journos, uh, Australian and American uh, currently working in Washington. If you're hearing anything about Mueller, it's coming from people who are being subject to investigation by Mueller um, or from Congress. But he is out there on his own timeline um, working away. And I can't help but think 2018 will be the year of Mueller. Um, and, and indeed, I think that you, as, as recent weeks have demonstrated too, I think an awful lot of um, work going on to either discredit Mueller's findings ahead of time um, from, or, or to shore him up. 
um, just highlighting the, the political stakes of uh, what he may find and when he chooses to present it. So, I mean, leaving aside the Mueller investigation, and obviously, as you say, it's a wild card, I mean, where do you think that the state of American politics is now? I mean, can can anything get done or not? Um, I'm curious to see where we land on two big ticket items. As we speak, um, negotiations underway on, on immigration, on, on in particular the Dreamers, um, that was the, you know, was the was the line in the sand that Democrats drew and shut down the federal government only, you know, about two weeks ago. They bought themselves a little bit of time, but right now, um, Democrats and Republicans are meeting to try and thrash out um, a deal. Um, um, we, I think, the the case for some more presidential leadership there is paramount. Although, frankly, it might be better if if Congress comes up with a deal and then presents it. Uh, uh, to the president. That's item number one. And item number two is infrastructure. Uh, you would think uh, that is something that is good news for many members of Congress like to get bridges and roads and tunnels and all the rest of it. Um, if they can't agree on that, that, that would be an indication that, that things are really in a bad state. But Congress needs to come together on a few big ticket items, um, uh, Trump notwithstanding. Um, and, and that's the hard part here. Uh, just such a polarizing figure, particularly as the political pressure on Mueller uh, is always there. That, that, that makes it very hard to put partisan rancor to one side and get on with some, you know, some policy that would be in the, in, you know, make sense on macroeconomic grounds, say. I guess just on the on the presidential sort of side of things, you know, the fact that he did, as you say, stay on uh, teleprompter, during the speech, I mean, um, that has happened before, and he's gone back to being um, Twitter Trump, uh, you know, and, and the sort of out of control kind of Trump in the past. So um, I suppose you can't have any confidence that that will continue, and that that he won't go back to being the polarizing figure that sort of stands in the way of political deals. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. Um, there's 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 no guarantee of that. He's he's had these moments of of, um, you know, when the network cameras are on him, um, being, being sort of seemingly much more conventional, at least in style, uh, but then goes back to the, to the, uh, residents in the, in the White House and pulls out the phone and, and starts tweeting. I think the challenge for everyone is to how to put those tweets in context. And that's something I think all of us, um, journalists, observers of American politics, people you know, deeply invested in, in the United States for business reasons or for whatever reason, how to put uh, those the tweets by the President of the United States in context. There's one school of thought that says, ignore what he says, focus on what he does. That's fine, but only up to a point, because at the end of the day, he is the President of the United States. He is Commander-in-Chief. Sure, you know, we, 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 we are looking at his statements to get some guidance as to what the actions might be. Um, so so it, it continues to pose a real challenge for those of us, as I said, uh, invested one way or another in the, in, the, in the United States. Just on the subject of Commander-in-Chief, a few of the people I've been reading have come away from that speech terrified by what he said about North Korea. They've kind of gone, oh, actually, he is thinking about they are thinking about a preemptive strike against North Korea. Did you come away from the speech with that idea as well? Uh, I've been there for a while, Alan, to be truth be told. Um, um, some very experienced 
um, foreign policy um, observers uh, that I routinely uh, speak to here in Australia who have worked in the United States, understand the United States extremely well. Uh, there's been a consensus view um, uh, among certain elements of that community here in Australia uh, in dialogue with their American friends that um, Trump is more serious about this than anyone might imagine, um, that he uh, is actively, uh, and his national security team is actively asking the U.S. military for options. Um, there's another school of thought that says while he is doing that, it is part of a credible signaling regime he's engaging. That is credibly raising the temperature so as to uh, make North Korea realize he just might do it. And moreover, to make China and perhaps even Russia think he might just do it. And those same people, by the way, would also point to some of the uh, motion we've had from North Korea now in dialogue with South Korea and even China uh, taking um, North Korea way more seriously, both publicly at the United Nations and behind the scenes with, uh, with, with um, taking the sanctions regime more seriously. Some people say it's actually having a positive impact, as, as scary and as apocalyptic sounding that talk might be, um, that it is actually having some effect on the ground. Um, so it is, it is a high-stakes game uh, Trump uh, seems to be playing. Um, but but I, I, like I said, I've been there for a little while, certainly since, I'd say, November, December. Um, um, friends of mine across the Australian foreign policy uh, establishment uh, sort of uh, were starting to have this conversation with me and I think with other think tankers uh, around Australia. I suppose it's one thing to threaten it and even to threaten it credibly, um, but to do it would change the game entirely, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Um, it, it certainly would. Uh, it, it would be a very interesting moment, not only for the world, but, but in particular for America's allies, um, Australia included. If, if Trump were to act preemptively, um, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is if Trump is acting in reaction to a provocation or an attack by North Korea, I think, I think you know, those are two very different states of the world. I think it's the former that poses a, a really interesting um, dilemma, say, for a country like Australia that probably realistically doesn't face a direct physical threat from North Korea. I think Japan and, and South Korea, perhaps in American allies, are just so much more geographically proximate uh, to North Korea. It might be a different calculus for them, but a really interesting issue for Australia. Uh, if, if if an ask were to come, um, say, from the, from the United States for Australian assistance in, in what is, at the end of the day, a, a preemptive um, assault on, on North Korea, were that to happen, right? So we're talking hypothetically, but but um, a very interesting set of circumstances to, to game out. And joining me now is Michelle Grattan, who, uh, of course, used to be with The Age and the editor of the Canberra Times, and now with The Conversation as its chief political commentator. Michelle, do you think that Turnbull is beginning to grow in confidence in some way? I think he is, Alan. I think that uh, the fact that the government had uh, a better end to the year than the months before has 
given him a, a boost in confidence and the government a bit more direction. Bill Shorten goes into this year under quite a lot of pressure with uh, looming uh, by-elections, at least one considered certain Batman. And also, uh, of course, he's got to increasingly produce specific policies about what Labor will do if in government. Yeah, so, um, so uh, Malcolm Turnbull, um, uh, as you report, uh, t- uh, talked about this year being the year of rewards. Um, he could have he could have said it's going to be when the bacon gets brought home. But do, do you think that the Turnbull's prospects really depend now on on the on the economy actually delivering on some of his uh, promises? Yes, on the economic numbers, the macro numbers being good, but. Also, I think those numbers have to translate into ordinary people feeling that their circumstances are reasonable. At the moment, a lot of people feel squeezed because of flat wages and their cost of living rising. And while they feel that way, I think they'll mark the government down. It mightn't be the government's fault, but nevertheless, uh, they'll be in a cranky mood. So it's not just the overall numbers, but it's the flow through to actual people's circumstances. Do do you think if Turnbull um, goes past the magic 30 uh, negative news polls, um, that he'll get fired? No, I don't, uh, for a few reasons. Firstly, he could still be behind in the polls, uh, but things could be looking better for him, uh, this sort of situation we're in now. Secondly, really the alternatives, Julie Bishop, Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison, are not seen as likely to deliver a better election result than Malcolm Turnbull. Now, I'm not saying Malcolm Turnbull is totally safe till the election, but I think on the balance of probabilities, one can say that it does seem now that he is likely to lead into the election. But as we all know, politics is very volatile in Australia these days, so don't put too much money on it. No, and I'm wondering whether um, uh, the fact that he's growing in confidence and all that stuff is um, partly due to the fading of Tony Abbott, which it seems to me is occurring. He's fading in one sense. He's uh, keeping up his comments, his presence, but I think he's becoming, to a fair extent, old news because he's reiterating the same themes and, of course, after a time, those uh, comments become less newsworthy. So he's not in the frame as much as he was. And Shorten uh, obviously needs to stay in the frame uh, as the opposition leader. Um, you, you kind of commented on his speech the other day to the National Press Club. As uh, You didn't use this term, but I got the sense that you thought it was, as, as cricketers say, line and length um, opposition leader speech, you know, pretty straightforward. Is that right? He's articulated problems. He's uh, homed in on cost of living, on high private health insurance coverage. He, of course, had the Integrity Commission as uh, the so-called announceable in the speech. But I think that the problem he faces is he now has to produce the detail. And also, he was a bit loose. Um, In one of the uh, questions he answered, he seemed to not 
rule out a possible cutback in the private health insurance rebate. Now, the opposition later cleaned that up, but that led to a lot of um, talk in the media that Labor could go down that route. He really has to be very careful that uh, he doesn't set hairs running in that sort of way. Uh, Similarly, there's speculation about how Labor's going to come through with this promise of raising wages, which is uh, agitating um, employer groups. Uh, It has to fairly quickly, I think, or should fairly quickly produce hard policy so that it it doesn't unnecessarily start off speculation, which then uh, leads down all sorts of paths. And finally, um, how much of a test is the Tasmanian state election? I mean, uh, if Labor wins that, do we all go, oh, well, um, the the coalition in Canberra is done and dusted? No, uh, because the Tasmanian uh, election is, uh, you know, fairly small beer, uh, but nevertheless, if Labor did get into power and it would be a minority Labor government, not a majority one, and it's still a considerable if, I think, it's more likely perhaps to be a minority Liberal government, but nevertheless, a a swing to Labor would, of course, be uh, translated to some extent nationally in the comments Uh, about it. But I think the South Australian election, which follows later in March, is more significant. That will be a big test of Nick Xenophon. And of course, uh, Nick Xenophon stands for the third force protest vote that we see in various iterations uh, in state elections and uh, and federally, the the Hansonites, uh, the Australian Conservatives, so on. So uh, that will carry a lot of interest. And now to talk about markets, here's Shane Oliver, the Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Well, Shane, uh, everyone's talking about bonds at the moment, with uh, with bond yields rising um, both in the US and here. How much of an impact is this likely to have on the share market? Bond yields certainly have started the year off on a strong note, uh, heading higher um, globally and in Australia. And I think that's partly on the back of the realisation that the global economy has got a head of steam up and the US Federal Reserve is likely to raise interest rates more than the market had been assuming. And of course, as US bond yields go up, so too do Australian yields, given the linkages globally. Um, I think uh, what happens in relation to the share market depends on how rapidly bond yields rise. For those of us who have long memories, we can think back to 1994, we had a bit of a bond crash that year. Aussie 10-year bonds went from 6.4% early in the year around February and got as high as um, just over 10% around August of that year. And of course, as bond yields rise, their value declines, um, causing a loss for bonds. And that also put pressure on the share market as uh, rising bond yields um, make shares look less attractive. Um, Alternatively, if bond yields just rise gradually, then I don't think there'll be a major problem because the reason bond yields are rising is because global growth is stronger and that, of course, means higher uh, company profits coming through. And our base case or our assumption is that, that the rise in yield will be relatively gradual. The 1994 bond crash was a bit of an odd event. People didn't really trust that inflation was under control back then. Um, central banks did move towards very aggressive interest rate hikes as opposed to the gradual 
rate hikes we're having at the moment. And of course, back then, uh, we saw the Australian Reserve Bank uh, raising rates with the US Federal Reserve, um, whereas this time around, it's the US Federal Reserve gradually raising rates, other central banks like the, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia lagging behind. So I, I suspect it's going to be more of a gradual process. It will put some pressure on the share market, certainly parts of the share market, yield sensitive areas of the share market like real estate investment trusts will remain under pressure, but um, we're still going to see uh, decent earnings growth coming through and that should underpin gains in the in the share market as a whole. The other part of the financial markets that have been quite interesting uh, in recent times has been foreign exchange and we've seen weakness in the uh, US dollar for basically 12 months now, sending the Australian dollar up above 80 cents. Um, where it sort of currently sits. Uh, what's your perspective on what's been going on this week and the impact of the State of the Union address on it? I mean, the the, dollar, the US dollar actually fell, I think, during the State of the Union. But, um, I mean, do, do you think that there's more weakness to come in the US dollar? I, I think uh, the weakness in the US dollar is going to be limited because the, the reality is that uh, the US economy is stronger than many others. Uh, it's got less capacity, less spare capacity, unemployment rate around 4%. Even if you add in the underemployed, um, you get a, a total number of around 8% in the US economy compared to, say, in Australia, where we've got 14% labour market underutilisation, which is when you add in underemployment plus uh, unemployment. Um, so there's a lot, lot less spare capacity in the US economy, and the Fed. I think will raise interest rates four or five times this year, which is more than the market's allowing for. And it's going to be a, a hell of a lot more than we're going to see the Reserve Bank do. I don't see the Reserve Bank moving till later this year at the earliest. Um, so I think ultimately those considerations, much stronger growth in the US compared to elsewhere, will see the US dollar rise. Um, but for the time being, it seems uh, investors have been looking the other way, um, maybe focusing on the fact that um, global growth is looking stronger, which points to eventual tightening in other central banks. But I, I think that's probably gone a little bit too far. And, and the big problem in, for America and the, and the Federal Reserve is that as the US dollar goes down, it's a de facto monetary easing. Uh, it's undoing some of their, their work for them, which only means they'll have to tighten by more, um, which ultimately I think will, will turn the US dollar higher. Likewise, uh, this rise in the Aussie dollar above 80 cents, that's a bit of a drag on our economy um, and could actually delay the time when the Reserve Bank starts to raise interest rates here, all of which I think will reinforce the view that uh, you know, by the end of this year, or in fact, within a few months, we're going to have a situation where US interest rates are above Australian interest rates. And historically, when that's happened, the Aussie dollar's gone down. Then again, I mean, I don't think many people predicted a 13% devaluation of the US dollar last year, which is what happened. Uh, when the year was beginning, I mean, I don't know where, where you where you were positioned at the start of last year, but what, what did, did you think that the US dollar would decline so much last year? No, I didn't, and I got it wrong. So I got to come clean on that one. Um, currency forecasting is always a hard one. It certainly surprised us. We thought there could be a bit of downside at the start of last year for the US dollar, but uh, it persisted through much of the year. Um, and ended up being a lot weaker than we would have thought. So I, I must admit, I've been surprised on the US dollar for a while now. Have you investigated? Um, have you investigated why you got it wrong? What what actually caused the US dollar to fall unexpectedly like that? I, I think it was a combination of factors. It's always hard to be precise on this, but I think there was a degree of political risk 
uh, seen in the US around Donald Trump, you know, the issues around the FBI, the Russian uh, inquiry link, the Mueller inquiry, um, and the political uncertainty in the US was being taken on the US dollar. At the same time, uh, in Europe, we started the year off with worries about elections in Europe, um, but pretty soon thereafter, it was clear that Europeans are going to stay together. Political risk actually declined in Europe. Um, then we had the, uh, I think they called it the Sintra address by the European Central Bank, uh, President Draghi, which sort of implied that, um, that they may be getting closer to a point where they'll slow the pace of quantitative easing in Europe, which of course they ultimately did. Um, and that those things, I think, led to a situation where the US dollar went down and Euro and other countries were, were, saw their currencies dragged up. Um, I guess my perspective is that uh, just because something was wrong last year doesn't mean it's going to go the wrong way again this year. I mean, the risks are certainly there, um, but I do think that this uh, this weakness we're seeing in the US dollar um, is creating a huge stimulus for the US economy at a time when it doesn't really need it. That 13% fall in the US dollar that's providing a huge boost to US growth at a time when they're getting these tax cuts coming through and there's not a lot of spare capacity in the US economy, um, all of which tells me that the US dollar has probably gone down a bit too far. Just finally, on the share market, um, I think you've been pointing out that you know the, the US market is, in valuation terms, quite elevated, um, less so in Australia. But the problem for Australian investors is if there's a correction in the US, which does seem due, um, we won't be immune from it, will we? No, history tells us that uh, we're not. Uh, you could argue going into 2015 that US share market was more expensive than the Australian share market, but the correction or the pullback we saw in, in uh, US shares from about May of 2014 to the low in February of 2016 was about 14% from memory, whereas the Aussie share market came down 20% over that uh, that that period, uh, which which I think in Australian shares uh, was from April to February of April 2015 to February of 2016. So historically, we we tend to be a higher beta market. Um, it's not always the case, but that tends to be the case um, because obviously, if our share market's coming down, it reflects worries about the global economy and the Australian economy centres more keyed into the global economy than the US is, given the commodity dependence we have. Um, so that risk is certainly there. But when you look at the valuations, it's uh, most certainly the case that Australian shares uh, on, you take a PE, price to earnings multiple basis. If you look at the Schiller PE, which is a ratio of share prices to a 10-year moving average of earnings, US shares are uh, trading on a PE on that basis of 30 times, whereas in Australia, it's about 15 times. Um, other measures are not quite as extreme as that, but they all show better value in the Australian market compared to the US market. So our, our feeling is that as long as we don't get a sort of a, a major fall in markets, then our market could or should perhaps do a little bit better than the US share market on a valuation basis. The offset, though, to all of this is that uh, company profits in the US are growing at around 14 or 15 percent. We've seen a very good start to the earnings reporting season in the US, whereas in Australia, company profits are growing after last year's very strong growth, that, that's slowing down to around 5 or 7%. Um, so we're seeing much slower earnings growth in Australia compared to the US. So when you balance those things out, uh, valuation argues for greater exposure to Australian shares, but earnings argue for greater exposure to, to US shares. Um, our, our assessment is that it's sort of line ball, but 
but looking more globally than just the US, um, you could argue that Europe and Japan are, are clearly better bets than Australia because their valuations are, are similar to Australian shares. So on balance, we tend to favour European and Japanese shares over Australian shares, but relative to the US, we're relatively neutral. I'm joined now by Ricky Pologenis, who's the head of Australian economics at NAB. Well, Ricky, uh, the inflation printed a little below expectations and uh, below the Reserve Bank's target. Uh, were there any surprises in it, as far as you could see? Look, the main undershoots from our perspective were in consumer traded goods, so things like clothing and footwear, furniture and floor coverings, audiovisual and computing. So I guess a whole lot of imported manufactured goods uh, were below expectations. We'd already trimmed those a little bit after the New Zealand CPI came in quite weak, but obviously not enough. So it does appear that there's still quite a lot of uh, competition in the retail space, which means that um, retailers um, aren't able to put up prices. Well, traded goods have been actually in deflation for ages now, haven't they? Yeah, look, that's right. Um, and in actual fact, um, inflation or for traded goods in the CPI, there are quality adjustments too. So, for example, um, if the um, the quality of a television goes up but the price remains the same, then that will be recorded as a price fall in the CPI figures as well. Yeah, right. So um, that's certainly been happening. There's no doubt about that. I've recently bought a telly and it's uh, it's certainly better and about the same as it used to be. Yeah, that's right. So I guess in addition to uh, the production costs coming down, um, there being greater competition from online and offshore suppliers, um, we're also getting this quality adjustment, which is uh, pushing down the price of a whole lot of traded goods as well. So your predictions, where do you see inflation coming back into the Reserve Bank's target band of 2 to 3%? When is that going to happen? Look, we're expecting that to happen uh, just by the end of this year and then to pick up slightly through 2019 to 2.2%. But, of course, that um, depends on whether we do see an uptick in wages growth. At the moment, we're expecting that to happen very gradually uh, through this year and into 2019, um, assuming, of course, that employment remains strong and um, we don't have any um, nasty surprises, particularly from offshore. Uh, but I guess there is a risk to the inflation outlook now that the currency is so high. So that could put even further downward pressure on tradable's inflation. So that would suggest you would think that um, interest rates are going nowhere for a while. We're still holding with our forecast uh, for the RBA to start, start hiking in the second half of this year. So two hikes in August and November. Um, but it is true also that there's, I guess, less imperative uh, to target any overheating in the housing market. And we still do need to see wages growth at least moving in the right direction so the RBA can be somewhat confident that inflation will eventually turn around. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like you think that the Reserve Bank really would like to put up interest rates, but is in a sense hamstrung at the moment. Yeah, and they will be hamstrung for a while because it's going to take a little while for inflation to pick up in, in a sustainable way. I mean, we're only really expecting that at the end of this year. 
I guess the thing that will support any move upwards is that global central banks are starting oh, are starting to tighten rates and that, um, I guess, momentum is broadening a little bit beyond the US to discussions around, around when the European Central Bank and others will start to tighten rates as well. So if global central banks are moving, um, then it makes it easier for the RBA to do that without putting um, undue upward pressure on the Aussie dollar. But a lot depends on the currency, don't you think? Well, of course, and I guess this is the this is the conundrum. So, if the Aussie dollar does stay up where it is at the moment, um, then that may actually um, lead to the RBA revising down its own inflation forecasts. Um, so then it comes back to an argument about whether or not they're still confident that inflation will eventually return to the target band, because it's not necessarily the case that. Um, inflation has to be within the band at the time that they start tightening because there's a lag between monetary policy and economic activity and then inflation. Um, so it, it's mainly um, an argument around whether the RBA can be confident enough that inflation will eventually get up there. Happy birthday, Eva Cassidy, who would have turned 55 today, but sadly was taken by cancer at the age of 33. Here's her beautiful rendition of Fields of Gold to remember her day. You can tell the sun in his jealous sky When we walked in fields of gold So she took her love for to gaze a while Among the fields of barley Well, that's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing us at hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler. Do have a constant week. Listener.